The eponymous protagonist of My Name is Yip is, in his own written words, a mute. He also stands at four feet and eight inches tall, and again in his words, there is not a single hair on my person. These physical limitations, coupled with the fact that Yip lives in the state of Georgia during the early 19th century gold rush, might make readers imagine that a brutish and limited life awaited him. And yet, through Yip Tolroy's sheer force of character, as well as a few twists of fate, his becomes a story with enough adventure, enough intensity, enough human feeling to fill this and possibly many more novels. The voice of Yip himself is an act of extraordinary literary ventriloquism on the part of debut novelist Paddy Crewe, who so utterly inhabits not only Yip's mind, but also his epoch and his geography, that every page of this book hums with an authenticity so rarely achieved in historical fiction. And I'm delighted to say that Paddy Crewe joins me in the writer's studio today. Paddy, welcome to Shakespeare and Company. Thank you very much for having me. Um, let's begin with, um, with at the beginning, I suppose. There's a moment, actually, towards the end of the book, where um, you, where Yip, writes, stories do so often come to us fully formed, and it's up to us how we read them. Um, I'm interested in that idea of stories coming to us fully formed, because in reading My Name is Yip, that is the sense that we get of a fully formed character, of a fully formed world, of a fully developed voice. And yet I know from, from writing that that is not necessarily how a book emerges to the writer. So could you tell us what the, the seed of My Name is Yip was? Was it the desire to write something in the gold rush? Was it Yip's voice or was it something else entirely? I think it's a combination of, of a lot of things. I think when people talk about inspiration, it is a sort of accumulation of certain things that you pick up here and there and then sort of slow, very slowly, you know, I think that's the sort of common misconception about inspiration is that it's a sort of immediate mm-hmm. epiphanous moment, but it's actually this sort of slow accruing of ideas that sort of drip feed um, and then sort of eventually become something, you know. Um, but I, yeah, it was certainly didn't come to me fully formed, uh-huh. you know, writing it. I think that's. I think it should be the opposite of that. I think it should be sort of a, a sort of day by day, um, sort of surprising yourself. Yeah. yeah, and so let's talk about them when you when you met Yip, mm. as it were, because um, and, I, and I'm go- I'm going to keep talking about Yip's voice through this, with the caveat that of course <clears throat> Yip doesn't have a spoken voice. We'll come on to to talk about that later, but. On the page, it's his manner of expression. Let's say it's so distinctive. Um, how did that uh, how did that come to you was it through reading books at the time was it through the kind of the general sort of elaboration of yip's world i think it took i mean it took a long time to get it uh i must have been working on it for 2 years mm-hmm. maybe before i wrote that first page right. um and and i think this is very true i'd sort of reached my Nadia, I thought mm. I can't do this anymore, and I'd uh, gone and I remember going to speak with my brother, and I said, "This is this is the end. I'm going to have to give this up." But then I think just when you're at that moment, I then went back home, and I remember writing that first page, which pretty much didn't change, bar a few mm. little things. Um, so yeah, it, it sort of came out of desperation really uh-huh. which I think so much of sort of your best writing does in a strange way um and yeah and I'd written a you know I'd, I'd read a lot of things around that time um sort of diaries of of sort of ordinary people that had that sort of 
you know, whatever that sort of slightly poetic leaning is mm. that he has, um, that was the thing that I wanted to capture, mm. mainly out of a sort of sense of because I enjoy doing it, and if I'm having fun, then there's a there's a sort of decent chance that the reader is as well. My name is Yip by Paddy Crew. Read by Erica Wagner. Chapter One An Imponderable Specimen. My name is Yip Tolroy, and I am a mute. I have made not a sound since the day of my birth, October the 2nd, 1815. I will say that my life has been something of a trial, but such is God's wish, and so I must tell my story here on the page. Indeed, I should thank him for these three fingers left me. They might still hold a quill and feel the ink flow free beneath them. I did leave them other two where they lay, and I have dreams still of the rains feeding them like green-tip shoots, where in that spot now stands a hand, the wrist a smooth-barked bowl, and a hundred fingers wagging like branches in the breeze. Answers have not ever come easy to me. By all accounts, they is like teeth. You can try to pull them clean out, but even then they will likely splinter and crack and there will be nothing but a palmful of dust at the end of it. Here is a lesson worth attending to. No one or thing comes into this world whole, and it is in the search of what is gone missing that our lives do find their meaning. That is the truth of it. At one time, a great many beardy doctors did apply their crude instruments to me, though none was able to declare a reason behind my queer afflictions. I ought to make it plain. I am not cut from the common cloth. Aside from my lacking of voice, I stand at four feet and eight inches tall, and there is, inexplicably, not a single hair on my person. Some have been willing to look upon my differences as mere eccentricities, though the majority have not been so generous with their opinions. I never did quarrel with them who chose to insult me, and I did not simper up to them who chose to treat me with civility. It is not my business to decide how others wish to comport themselves. Only know that I have grown to look upon my own reflection in kind, for there is no hatred more pernicious than that which is turned upon the self. It is true enough, though, that most people are affronted in one way or another at the sight of me. I have had many strangers, and even them I considered friends, claim I should be caged and preserved for the general public to enjoy as entertainment. I did not figure this a likely chapter of my days, but much to my dismay, their wishes was to come true, and I did, in fact, spend a short spell under the dubious protectorship of Mr. Jim Coyne, and his traveling show. Of this, I will tell you more later. As for them doctors, I come to understand they are a breed what do not much relish a mystery. 
on meeting me, they would work themselves into a great lather of excitement, and then after an hour of poking and prodding, looking down my throat and into my ear holes, their faces would grow dark and irritable. More than once, I was referred to as an imponderable specimen. I could not claim to have the understanding of such a remark back then, but I had sense enough to glean it did not pretend nothing good. It is just my humble opinion that there is many stories writ beneath the skin what will not give up their meaning to no earthly eye. This, I know, troubles a doctor greatly. He will not confess to it, but part of his studiment of all them long years was in the hope that he will somehow keep on breathing long past the rest of us have quit. Well, I am still here and still breathing. No one has figured me out yet. I have led a life filled with wonder and misery both. That is the way God intended it. If you do not suffer pain, then you will not know what it is to live and love. I have to hope there is not so much pain from now on to the end, though. I do not think any soul could claim me a liar when I say I have had my fill. So Yip's world, as I said in the introduction, is early 19th century Georgia. Um, your world is early 21st century Britain. What, what, what was the connection between them? What was it that drew you to um, not only to sort of read a lot about this world and discover it, but also to sort of project your voice into it? I think the fact that there is no connection, I think that's the draw. Um, I just had no desire, you know, rightly or wrongly, to sort of fall into that. I didn't want to write about my northern upbringing mm -hmm. in some sort of, you know, kitchen sink <laughs> drama. Uh, you know, the fun that's to me... That's all you're allowed yeah, to do yeah, well, as like, a young well, exactly. northern British writer. Some, pe some people would say that... Um, but I think, you know, that's that's your job as a writer. You know, you you you're meant to be stretching yourself, mm -hmm. um, and that to me is where the enjoyment comes. Um, it was almost, you know, as sort of as far away as I can get, the the better. Um, mm -hmm. Which not, isn't necessarily. I, I don't think that's a sort of principle that I'd live by, you know, for the rest of my writing days. But certainly, to it seemed like. You know, I wanted to really wanted to have something distinct, and and that felt like that it was mine, and that nobody else was doing it. I think that's a sort of generally probably a quite a strong impulse for a lot of people, mm -hmm. particularly with their first book. They want to make some kind of impression and, and sort of hang your hat on something. Um, so yes, yeah. And so when you were sort of finding your way into that world, was it? important to you that you tacked close to historical fact and historical reality and historical modes of expression because I've, I've spoken to quite a lot of writers over the years about research generally and I find they're sort of and this is speaking very broadly but two quite clear camps which are people who are sort of obsessed with getting every detail right and people who are like well I just need to get the feeling and you know and I'll, I'll let the magic of my writing do the work. Do you tack to one or the other of those? I think research, you know, is is obviously necessary to do in, in for so many reasons. Um, 
but I would always be in, I think, the camp of, of getting the story down and sort of, you know, I think, I think that free, that, uh, that feeling of freedom that mm-hmm. I am seeking when I'm writing, I think can be so sort of easily inhibited by if you're sort of weighed down by research and you're sort of wading through, you know, all of these facts and, and, uh, I, I do think it can have a sort of detrimental mm-hmm. impact on the on the actual story because you know because I think as soon as it be- this is as, a, as a, I think this is such a personal thing if it becomes if it starts to feel sort of too academic then I I sort of lose the mm. the interest really because you've sort of exhausted yourself by you know part of the reason you want to write it and want to get to the end of the book is wanting to find out what happens to yourself and if you've sort of you know, consumed all of this information, then it can sort of, I think it can sort of satisfy the, the sort of thirst or the hunger that you had in the first place. Mm. So I, I think that's the danger. Um, so I would always, you know, I would always do some, I, you know, I did a lot of reading before it and I did, but then I did a lot of reading sort of during mm-hmm. it as you, as you sort of going along and then sort of retrospectively I would have people, you know, uh, I would have some very good readers who would be able to point out certain things where I'd, I'd maybe taken some sort of liberties. But um, yeah, I think your your duty is to tell the story mm-hmm. first, um, or at least that's it seems that way to me. Yeah. Were there some core texts in uh, sort of contemporary with Yip's Yip's time that you sort of you held on to as maybe stylistic inspirations or sort of had that helped you build the world? There was one. Um, I always forget the title. I think it was called just called the Dan- the Diaries of Daniel Chisholm. Mm-hmm. I think who was, um, and it's sort of war diaries of from the from the Civil War, so slightly later than when Yip set. But that sort of, you know, that sort of he's just sort of, you know, as you do in a diary, you're just sort of speaking as you would. There was something about I I would often refer to that to sort of get back into the into the swing of things because that's often you know with historical fiction or at least I found this that sometimes you sort of need to or I felt I needed to sort of sort of work my way back into Mm -hmm. it because so often you know a book and I think this is probably true of, of just fiction generally that it can sort of shut you out and you have to sort of you have to actually sort of work hard to to sort of find your place again where you where you're in it um so I would often have, yeah, that just if you just sort of read that for ten minutes, then it, it gets you back in a certain headspace that I think is is very he- mm-hmm. helpful. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so in top on top of the challenges of obviously projecting yourself and projecting Yip into this 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 world that you are not familiar with, you added almost sort of increasing obstacles with Yip's kind of physical um, presence in the world or lack of it sometimes. The thing that it put me in mind of actually immediately when I started reading was um, the Tin Drum, the Gunter Grass novel and the way that sort of the the protagonist's Oscar, if I remember rightly, his sort of his physical limitations really change the way he apprehends and interacts um, with the world. Why did it seem necessary to you when you wanted to write about that time to have a character who was also in some way physically out of step with the world he inhabited it's a very difficult 
uh, question to answer because the I, the truth is I, I don't really know. Um, again, I could maybe I could sort of point toward the fact that I was, you know, it was sort of adding to the challenge in some way. But I think the probably close to the truth is that that's how I imagined him, um, and you know, not to sound too sort of numinous, but you know, when you're, when you're sort of, it is a very much a sort of conversation that I'm having with him and sort of, he's telling me that these are the, mm -hmm. this is how it is, which sounds like a really annoying thing to say, but <laughs> I think it's, I, there is an element of truth to it. Uh -huh. Um, but I, I, yeah, I don't really know why he had those limitations mm -hmm. other than it made it, you know, it made him sort of somehow perhaps somehow realer to me. I mm. don't know. Um, mm. Yeah. Was there then a moment, because um, it suddenly occurred to me when I, when I was reading it, where I thought the sensibilities of a 21st century audience and a 21st century writer towards uh, physical disabilities compared to the sensibilities of people in the time that Yip is living are so vastly different. And it struck me, and this is a line I think you tread very well, that it, it's a very, very thin line for a writer to tread between writing something which is not going to necessarily offend and upset contemporary readers because of the, uh, the attitudes expressed in it, and then writing something which feels authentic uh, to, the, to the time. Was that a challenge for you? Yeah, I mean, more than a challenge, I think it's a, it's a worry. Uh -huh. um, because it, you know, it, as you say, it is a very fine line. Um, but I wanted him, or I didn't want him to sort of be defined by any of these things. Mm -hmm. I didn't want it to be a sort of, uh, um, you know, this sort of trauma-based um, novel where he's dealing with all of these terrible things that have happened to him. I think he's incredibly robust and mm. I don't think it's not like he you know, he doesn't really acknowledge them himself. Mm -hmm. Um that's not part that's not why he's telling the story. Um it's he's telling the story because of all these extraordinary things to happen uh, that happened to him. But um it is a fine line and it, it, it's I think it's a worry for every writer these days because, you know, it's you're always, you're only a uh, a haircut away from finding <laughs> yourself in trouble. But um, yes, and were, and, were, and were there particular moments when I don't know you might have thought it would have been you know, there was a word perhaps that might have been used about Yip in the nineteenth century, which in the twenty first century, even while inhabiting this world, you couldn't find yourself using. Yeah, I mean there are all there are all kinds of words. Um, that I think were being used at the time that are no longer appropriate, certainly for me to use, um, because it's you know as you say that you know somebody somewhere would be, could potentially be very upset by it. Um, so you have to be very very careful about what you what you're doing, um, and sometimes you know. Um, you sort of have to forsake historical accuracy for something that's would be more palatable mm -hmm. in sort of contemporary society. Um, so there are all sorts of, you know, um, things that people would have said to him that would be, 
deeply unpleasant but historically accurate um but you've got to maybe find room for elsewhere yeah and i guess there's also like with a lot of um writing and sort of creative endeavor sometimes those limitations can produce something interesting in themselves right like i think in a sense if you you know were completely free with certain terminology at the time then that could perhaps lead to a certain laziness in writing whereas having to balance the two leads to perhaps a certain kind of uh yeah sort of creative direction which the book might not have taken otherwise yeah i think that's true i think actors talk a lot about that i'm i'm very interested in how they talk about it i think there are so many parallels mm-hmm. to do with acting and writing and having some kind of structure imposed on you i think does for sort of for reasons that sometimes i can't really fathom mm-hmm. sort of um yeah add a certain something to this to the engine of the whole thing yeah yeah yeah. another difference i think between the sort of 21st century reader i suppose and uh and perhaps what the the 19th century reader and writer might expect is this idea of a certain psychological complexity i guess which uh, when i when i read sort of texts from uh the time of um that you're writing about often one thing that strikes me is they're very sort of uh, very straightforward, this happened to me and then that happened and I felt this and this person was like that and I moved on. Whereas in what we've come to expect, I think, through the 20th and into the 21st century, is the sort of uh, an engagement with the, the psychological depth, the complexity, the uh, individuality, I suppose, the interiority of the um, of the character. And that was something I found very interesting about this novel, is that it seems to me that you managed to bring some of that psychological complexity without then making it seem in some way um, anachronistic in uh, in Yip's voice. Was that was that a difficult sort of limitation to to put on yourself was it to not allow let's say 21st century ways of speaking about things and understanding the personality to infiltrate Yip's vision of the world? Yes I think it is it is difficult um, but it's you know you you constantly have to remind yourself that this is his world and mm. i'm i'm the guest in it um and you know it's that it, you know sometimes pe- you you read things and you find people falling into this trap of the character is sort of pointing things out uh sort of generally sort of quotidian mm-hmm. uh banal things as if i need to be told you know you this is their world Mm -hmm. they know everything in it it's not like i'm going to go out you know if i was writing about contemporary society i'm not going to go around pointing every phone box out or um some writers do (laughs) yeah that's true but you know it's you it is a sort of i think it is a trick of you know maybe going back and getting into a certain headspace Mm -hmm. i think whatever you've got that can get you back there um which you know, I'd I'd all sorts of little things. I would you know I would do. I would always write, sort of by, um, with the blinds drawn and by sort of low lamplight, mm-hmm. just as a you know, because there's no use in me writing that whilst looking out the window at, you know, a, a Lamborghini tearing by. It, right. There's a sort of, there's, it just doesn't. Where make, do you live? <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> I was in Peckham at the time. When I was writing that. Um, so yeah, that doesn't—it just doesn't make sense to me. Uh-huh. 
Um, but yeah, I don't know whether that's answered your question. Well, I think it does, but I think it is. I, I should point out is that I did. I think you do bring. That's the interesting thing. You do bring some of that psychological complexity into Yip's world, but without sort of making it seem out of place. And I think because I think if it was, let's say, entirely authentic replication of a voice from that time, the contemporary reader might find it as I as at least I tend to do with books from that time, sometimes a little plodding and a little bit sort of uh, yeah. a, bit, a bit limited in some way compared to, it is, to what we expect. It is a danger. Um, and again, it's that balance between, you know, you're, you're sort of desperately seeking your authenticity, but, mm. you know, in that, in that search for that, you can sort of, as you say, make something sort of unnecessarily hard work. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Let's talk a little bit about Yip's wider world then. So we, you know, we've, we've talked a lot about his character, but we don't actually know much yet about what uh, happens to him. And I, I want to tread around it quite carefully in the conversation because there's so many kind of surprising, exciting, amusing, terrifying things that happen to him that I don't want to, to spoil it for any listeners who haven't, um, haven't read the book. But he's, um, he's from this town, Heron's Creek. Um, could you just talk a little bit about uh, that town, particularly where we find it at the beginning of the book? I mean, it's completely fictional, mm-hmm. which I, which was important to me. <clears throat> Again, I think that is a that sort of freedom that I was talking about earlier is just so essential for me to be enjoying what I'm doing, and I, I just didn't need the complexities or. You know how easy it is to try when you're trying to get certain things right about a sort of geographical mm-hmm. area, and there are certain road names and streets and things that people are constantly pointing out to you that you've got it wrong. Yeah. Um, I want I, I I didn't want that, and I wanted it to be very much of my own design. Um, you know, particularly just because this to make the story work, mm-hmm. it had to it had to be a certain shape, and certain things had to be, you know. Uh, the horse's stable had to be opposite the tavern, mm-hmm. things like that, for for the for the actual narrative to to function properly. Um, but it's a it's a sort of standard small town of that period, um, and that's the, the exciting thing of that period is that towns were just sort of appearing everywhere uh-huh. and then you know disappearing a year later, um, and that sort of sense of of lawlessness was very important mm. to the to the book, um, and yes, I don't know where I'm going with that. Well, let's let's pick up on that that sense of of lawlessness and this kind of I guess because also one thing and we've mentioned this is sort of on the during the the period of often referred to as the the gold rush, and as and as I, as I was thinking about about this sort of as a historical phenomenon, uh, I, I suppose my tendency when I when I read a work of historical fiction written um in you know sort of a long time later in a different place and a different time is to try and establish what are the parallels between our current society and what was happening at the time and what are the um the elements that make it so completely alien i guess um and so in your in your reading and researching and sort of inhabiting of uh that kind of town at that particular sort of tipping point of you know it's it's grown up it's it's lawless there's a possibility of vast wealth or not coming to to its people. Did you see sort of parallels from the world you were living in in Peckham with your Lamborghinis driving past, or <laughs> or did it feel like sort of 
a political social situation that was completely detached i think it's i think those things can sort of only occur to you retrospectively mm-hmm. i think the the focus for me was so much on the voice and on that on that sort of carrying the the story um that there wasn't a you know there wasn't a great deal of thinking beyond that really um as dim as that might make me sound but um no i i it was very much a, a sort of day to day of of um of finding that finding that voice again and finding it and giving it that sort of necessary energy to take it to take the sort of story on because that was always had always been um had always been my my goal was to have a sort of propulsive adventure mm-hmm. novel that was what i set out to do um and if there were certain parallels that might have sort of cropped up along the way then you know that's a that's a nice little thing but it's it's sort of it's always going to be a, a happy accident mm-hmm. putting a, a character like yip into a um sort of propulsive adventure story as you describe it requires i guess um certain collaborators uh, at the time a certain people who are going to sort of help yip uh, advance his story because <clears throat> despite you know having this kind of force of character which he certainly does have obviously there are ways such as his um such as you know his his inability to speak which 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 will limit him if he doesn't have an outside sort of force helping him along and so one of the ones one of the early ones in his life is this this character of shelby Stubbs, who is both a sort of um a friend i think in fact you've described him as both a friend and a teacher at different moment and and a, a G- Shelby Stubbs is the one who teaches Yip to to read and write and therefore kind of uh, gives him his voice. Like, how crucial was it for you to have this kind of, I guess, sort of mentor figure early on in um, in Yip's in Yip's life? And also, I guess, what were the what were the stakes with then sort of the, the fate of this uh, of this character for you? Well, it was always essential because, as you say, this is the person Shelby Stubbs is the person that gives Yip uh, his his voice and and sort of you know opens up his world. Uh, before he meets Shelby Stubbs, he is this sort of um, sort of trapped, uh, incredibly sort of insular and vulnerable character who has no no way of communicating anything. Um, even his relationship with his mother is is sort of very strained, and they communicate only by the sort of the most sort of primitive gestures. Mm-hmm. Um, so Shelby Stubbs is is really the first person that that sort of pays him any attention, um, which he is sort of sort of relatively suspicious about uh-huh. uh, to begin with. Um, but as soon as they meet you know that's that's the first sort of real turn in the in the book um and you know they have a a sort of very moving friendship which is which is sort of has sort of paternal inflections mm-hmm. um yip has never met his father and doesn't really know what happened to him and shelby stubb sort of neatly slots into that into that space that um he's been he's been missing um i think he says i think yip says something at the time says anybody that tells you that you um 
can't miss what you don't have is a lie big enough to sink a ship. I mm-hmm. think that's how he puts it. Um, so it's it's an incredibly important relationship for him. Yeah. Mm. And you mentioned uh, you mentioned his mother, um, and that. <clears throat> I think that that sort of surprised me in a way um, because often in these, let's say, the sort of these these kind of stories of the sort of the uh, the uh, the child who's been who's never met his father or has been abandoned by his father or has lost his father in some way, um, at the start the <clears throat> the the relationship with the mother is often very uh, sort of fusional in a sense and you know the and the mother figure is often this kind of uh, long suffering sort of heroin, I suppose. And, and there's elements of that to, uh, to um, Yip's mum. But at the same time, um, there's also this curious distance to their relationship as well. So at a moment, um, Yip says, you know, as you well know, me and my mama had never forged ourselves a bond beyond the necessaries our arrangement did require. And there's something kind of this odd, I guess, yeah, coldness and... Uh, and distance to that relationship, brought on by you know circumstances as well. But um, yeah, it just seems like quite a must must been quite a curious relationship to write. It was. Um, I always sort of knew that it was important for it to be like that. Um, she is a sort of radically independent woman um, who, you know, in the absence of her husband, uh, has no interest in in marrying again mm-hmm. and runs. The general store um, by herself, and which she's very, very proud of, and I think has certain expectations of Yip to somehow sort of join her in that enterprise and contribute in a way that he's simply incapable of doing. Mm-hmm. And I think I just don't think she has the equipment to deal with him mm-hmm. or and his his sort of uh, limitations uh, and I think she's deeply sort of sad and frustrated by that I I don't think she you know it's not for lack of love because I think she loves him very very deeply I just think you know as with a lot of people you she finds it very very difficult to express that and mm-hmm. I think that comes out in ways that I think uh, are damaging and hurtful to Yip and confusing for him um because he you know he longs for mm. uh that kind of relationship with her um and that's you know again back to Shelby Stubbs because he's sort of filling both mm-hmm. roles um so it was it was a i think it's yeah it's it's probably the most uh i think she's incredibly important mm. to the whole to the whole structure of the book yeah another another uh, person from Yip's world who is who is very important, becomes increasingly important as the book goes along, uh, is Dud Carter. And so I'm going to skirt around the exact circumstances that bring, get Yip out of Heron's Creek and get him and Dud on the on the road together. But I think as a reader, one thing I felt when uh, seeing their, uh, their relationship develop and seeing the way they, they interacted with each other and seeing sort of this, 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 this friendship forge in... Um, in sort of difficult circumstances, is suddenly sort of a retrospective realization of how lonely Yip was beforehand, actually. And you know, he had his mother who fulfilled certain of his, you know, his survival needs, but that didn't quite get there. And Shelby Stubbs, you know, he was a friend, but he was also a teacher, so there was a certain distance there. And it really feels like with Dud, 
there is something yeah there's there's, there's something quite pure and genuine and deep uh, about that that connection which until then had had been denied yep yeah um i think there's tremendous loneliness even in just being able to write i mean he's you know he's overjoyed by the idea of actually having a voice that he can add to the world but you know i spent an afternoon uh with a friend of mine and i was not allowed to talk mm-hmm. but i and i actually had a piece of slate mm. and some chalk <laughs> and i communicated just using this and it's very very difficult and isolating even just to have that um so when him and dud meet i think you know he's also experienced loss mm-hmm. and loneliness and they find in each other yeah i think something that they haven't had before and something that shelby stubbs couldn't give uh yip um and it was a a very sort of moving thing to write about at times um because neither of them felt that they had a place in the world and together they sort of did feel like that um and it's a very very quick you know and i think that's true of any relationship that it that if it's based on some sort of mutually mutual sort of trauma or something that it's very sort of bonding mm-hmm. um and it happens fast and there's a sort of uh strength sort of underpinning it that maybe is is absent in other relationships yeah 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 and also because that becomes particularly stark when and again skirting around these precise details when their paths separate for uh different moments during the book suddenly you as a reader feel that that loss and that absence is almost like not exactly like yip and dud have become one person but certainly there's this sort of uh not only emotional dependence but also uh sort of physical and, and sort of as you said earlier quotidian dependence uh you know, between the between the two of them yeah i mean yip they they sort of need each other by the end of it mm-hmm. as much as you know yip physically needs dud um on on many occasions but it you know i think i think dud needs yip just as much as 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 yip needs him mm-hmm. there's um this tension i found throughout the book between I guess somebody taking control of their life and doing things which have an impact on 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 their direction and things being done to them and sort of whether that be by other people or whether that be by I guess this sense of sort of fate or even even sort of god's will um as it sort of is sometimes sometimes expressed by certain characters and that struck me as something which is perhaps not acknowledged so much in a lot of uh, contemporary or even like 20th century writing, which seems to be so much about the sort of the the individual, their decisions and the effect that those decisions have directly on their life. And that's sort of one thing that seems to underpin this book is acknowledgement of it. Yeah, we can do things that affect our life, but there's also this whole range of other factors that we just don't have um, have any control over. And in some way, I have the sense of going, being with Yip, it helps us kind of, 
I don't know, perhaps appreciate that a bit more about our own lives. Yeah. <clears throat> I think, you know, as much as writing can be an expression of something, I think it is, you know, it's it's what I fear most. It's what I, you know, I worry about every day. And, I, you know, like everybody else, is, is something, you know, coming for you out of the blue mm-hmm. and radically changing the course of your existence. Um, I think it, you know, I think it's, I think it's important to acknowledge that because it is true. Mm-hmm. Um, we do have such limited control over what on earth is going on in our lives as much as we'd like to think we do. Um, and I think Yip is one of the, one of the sort of most charming things about him, or at least when I when I sort of look back at or look at him now, is that I think he he acknowledges that in a in a in, with a sort of real integrity, mm-hmm. um, and he understands that he isn't quite uh, in control and never has been, and and maybe there's there can be sort of some comfort found in that. Yeah, 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 and indeed a comfort he also finds sort of going one step further, I suppose. Uh, and he, he he writes, I have discovered the comfort what comes from the knowing of your own inconsequence. So not even just the fact that things can happen to you, but also that your life doesn't necessarily mean anything, but that's OK. Yeah. <laughs> and mean, again, not something not something you find in a lot of yeah. books. I mean, personally, I, I remember, you know, like a lot of people do in the sort of teen angst. I think you everybody has that moment of realisation. Um and whereas it once might have appalled me, uh, I find enormous comfort in that fact that mm-hmm. uh, I don't really matter and never will. Um, <laughs> I That pleases me to think of that. Um, I'm not sure everybody would agree, but that's the way I see it. Mm. Um, to, um, to, to conclude, I mean, the... Uh the position from which Yip is writing is, you know, I don't think we haven't find out specifically, but it is several da- years down the line. We get some hints about his his life that he's writing from. So he's in some way, he seems kind of established. There seems to be uh, a sort of a family life um, around him. Um, and I suppose one of the things I felt when getting to the end of the, the book, which I kind of alluded to in the introduction was, there's, well, there's there's more from Yip. That we're going to hear more from Yip. Now, I'm not asking you to commit to like another book in the saga uh, now, but like I'm just curious to know, since you put down your pen on you know this particular book, has Yip? Do you have a sense of a detailed sense of where Yip's life went? Are there more adventures? You know, what um, has he continued to live for you? What once this adventure was uh, was concluded. I think I think so. Yeah, I mean, I deliberately left that ending open with the idea that maybe you know at some point in the future that you know I don't know when that will be that that I would return to him because I think I think he's got a few more stories up his mm-hmm. sleeve, um, you know, and I enjoyed writing it, and that's that's really what I sort of care about. I want to be having fun, so I you know. I would like to, to, to do it again, because you know that's the interesting thing about characters that you've created. They they do sort of live on somewhere mm-hmm. in your in the back of your mind, and you, you sort of occasionally revisit them, and it's 
it's a bit like sort of seeing an old friend. Uh-huh. Yeah, your paths cross uh, yeah. <laughs> cross once again. <laughs> that feels like the perfect place um, on which to to leave it. My name in you. Well, my name is Yip is obviously available from Shakespeare and Company, from our bricks and mortar store, from uh, our newly relaunched website. So if you're wherever you are in the world, uh, you can log on to that www.shakespeareandcompany.com and uh, discover my name is Yip and everything else we we have to offer. And of course, it's available from your local independent bookstore wherever. Uh, you may be based. All that remains for me to say is, Paddy, thanks so much for joining us here today. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Shakespeare and Company podcast. If you've enjoyed this conversation, it would be great if you could help us spread the word by reviewing or rating us in your favourite app or just by sending the link to your friends. And don't forget, if you'd like even more from Shakespeare and Company, you can subscribe now through Apple Podcasts or Patreon for just €3 Euro a month. Links to both are available in the show notes to this episode. Production of this podcast is all done in-house here at Shakespeare and Company Paris. All music is by Alex Fryman, whose album Play It Gentle is available to buy or stream wherever you listen. We'll be back soon. Until then, take care and thanks again for listening. <laughs>